All right, welcome back, everybody, to Story, Symbol, Spirit, a podcast on how to make sense of Scripture. My name is John McCambridge, and I am joined, as always, by the talented... Oh, wow. I'm Jackie Mitchell. Jackie Mitchell. What a nice intro. Thank you. Yeah, I feel like I've been a little hard on you. (laughs) Uh, All right. Well, Jackie, today's an exciting episode because today we are going to talk about giants. Yes. So there's a famous verse in Genesis 6 that talks about the sons of God and human women, mm-hmm. and the production of some kind of race of Nephilim is what it's called in the Bible, which is typically translated as giants. And so today, we're going to get into it. Mm-hmm. Lots of people have questions about this. Lots of people wonder what's going on uh, with this verse specifically. Yeah. And uh, like we talked about at the beginning of this podcast when we kind of launched this thing, this is one of those verses that if you're just a, if you're a Sunday school teacher— you're going to try to skip. You're like praying no kid asks you about this. Yeah. 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 And some of the stuff we're going to talk about, you know, we're going to get into like deep, you know, ancient history and ritual and things that there's no reason for a modern person to have some of this knowledge other than specifically seeking it out for something like this. And so it is a complicated thing and there's a lot to learn about it. And hopefully what we talk about today will shed a little bit of light Mm -hmm. and make it a little bit less strange. It's not, it won't be not strange. But hopefully it helps us get a little bit of uh, context around it. You know what I mean? Yeah. All right. Well, Jackie, before we get into that, I had a question for you. All right. When you were growing up, what was, did you have some stories that you remember, like some children's stories that had to do with giants? Oh, yeah. I had a few. Uh, Jack and the Beanstalk, right? Jack he climbs the up there. There's a, there's a giant up there, right? Yeah, that's the classic one. Okay. Yep. Yep. I was trying to think of some other ones. Do you have any other ones? Was James and the Giant Peach about a giant or just a giant peach? I never, I don't think I ever read that, uh, but remember. it definitely a giant peach, as the name implies. I, think I don't know if the giant yeah, but peach. Whose giant peach was is it? Is it for, <laughs> right? I thought it was his. <laughs> I thought he like lived in it, right? I thought I he kind of like hollows it out, doll? I think. I, I think so. I'm probably making myself sound stupid right now. I don't know. Um, what about, uh, did you read the, the Clifford, the big red dog story? Yeah, he is a giant. I did read those. Dog. I watched those. The, it was like a show as well. I watched that. Yep. Yeah. Um, not a lot of interactions with giants, I guess. Now that I think about it. The, the Iron Giant. What was that? Like, oh yeah, movie? I think it's called the Iron Giant. Although that's just a robot. He's not like yeah. organic. Transformers are kind of like big giant things. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so there is, I would say, like a fascination with giants in mm-hmm. our normal day-to-day lives. Like when I was a kid, I was obs- like one of the reasons I was obsessed with basketball was because they were so they're tall. Like giants. They are, yeah. You know, like if you ever see a picture of Shaq next to a normal person, it it looks ridiculous, right? Yeah. And then there was this Chinese uh, basketball player who played in the NBA for a long time, named Yao Ming, who was like way bigger than Shaq. And there's a picture on the internet, and I talk about this all the time. My wife makes fun of me, but I'm, like, obsessed with this picture (laughs) because there's Yao Ming, Shaq, and Dwayne The Rock Johnson, (laughs) and they're all standing, like, (laughs) next to each other. And The Rock, who, for all intents and purposes, is a very large human, looks absolutely tiny. And (laughs) Shaq looks normal-sized. And then Yao Ming looks, like, crazy big. But Shaq is seven feet tall, weighs, like, 400 pounds, right? So there really are kind of giants, Oh, yeah. In like a physical sense, right? Yeah. Now, that's not exactly what we're talking about in the Bible, but we also, something about this piques our interest. Absolutely. Like, what if there are slash were like humans, but they're giant? Yeah. 
something about that is like it's like cool yeah to us interesting Hmm. yeah so so you know what was kind of what has been the way that people talk about this in like your history and, and growing up in church and yeah um couple ways um I think one is that people have thought this to just be kind of like a little myth, like a little mythology mm-hmm. strung in to the Bible. Like legend. Yeah, kind of yeah. like, and here's some like legend given. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think that people have described this as like, as like, like evil men of like human, mm-hmm. evil human men. And, you know, righteous right. women, mm-hmm. you know, intermingling, which we'll talk about later in Leviticus, yep, yep. you know, the, the, the ceremonial, like keeping clean, mm-hmm. staying as a nation, like set apart. Yep. It's a couple of ways I've heard talked about it before. Yeah. And that's kind of like, I want to, in the same way that we talked about the ages of the, the patriarchs in yeah. Genesis 5, I want to keep open the possibility of, of all of those things, mm-hmm. right? Like it, it, it is one of those things where what exactly this means is is hard to yeah. understand. What I will say is that I think it's important because I actually think that whatever the Nephilim are, it plays a huge role in the rest of, of the Old Testament. Hmm. And so we'll we'll get into that as we go, and we'll probably get into that today. Uh, but but what I want to do is I want to read the verse where all of this kind of comes about, the passage, which is Genesis 6, 1 through 4. Um, and so here... Yeah, so so here's where this concept mm-hmm. comes up, right? Yeah, we'll start reading at Genesis 6-1. Yeah, Genesis 6-1. Go ahead. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and married any of them that they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God went into the daughters of humans and had children by them, they were the heroes of old, men of renown. All right, so we've kind of got two concepts here. We've got the sons of God. Yeah, I got it backwards. I just realized. Would I said you? I said the the like evil men and and mm. women of God, but I I meant it the other way around. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, so so there's so there yeah there's the sons of God. Yes, and then there's the Nephilim, mm-hmm. and so these are kind of the two things that. In our understanding of the world, it's hard for us to understand what this means, right? Mm-hmm. This is why the spirit aspect of our story, symbol, spirit, interpretive method is important because, like we've been talking about, we don't necessarily intuitively see the world like this. The Bible is speaking about here is something spiritual. Yeah. It's a reality, but it's, it's, it's not just a normal, everyday, material occurrence. And so we'll begin talking about the sons of God. And so the sons of God refers to what you and I would typically think of as angels. Mm-hmm. And in fact, in the, the Greek text of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, it's translated as angels. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, these are created beings of the spiritual realm. And you're going to see the importance of this in some of the New Testament stories and verses that we're familiar with, because um, it's, it's really stressed that Jesus is the son of God, but in a very unique way. Yeah. So in, in John chapter 1, for example, um, we, we tend to translate as the only begotten son. Mm-hmm. And in John 3, 16, right? Send his only begotten son. And the Greek term for only begotten is monogenes. And so like, m- like mono-generated, sure. right? Mm-hmm. So 
one generation. So that so that could mean single, like single source. So like mm. only begotten, or it can mean unique, one of kind. Mm. And it, it, in in the Greek, it means you know both of these things. And so the the reason that Jesus is stressed to be the monogenes son of God, the only begotten son or the unique son is because he is both of these things. He's the only begotten son of the father and he is a unique son. And the reason it's important to understand that he's a unique son of God is because there's other sons of God. Yeah. Right. There, there are the, the angels who are called sons of God all throughout (laughs) the old Testament. And so Jesus is not an angel. Mm -hmm. This was actually an early church controversy. Yeah. So trying to figure out what does it mean for Jesus to be fully human and fully divine. And one of the main things that they agreed upon was that he is not an angel. He is Mm. the eternal son of God enfleshed, which is different. And so he is the son of God, but in a unique, one-of-a-kind, only begotten way. And so I bring all of that up just to show that that the reason that that has to be fleshed out by the early church is because there's all these other instances of the sons of God. Yeah. And that's not the same thing as as what Jesus is. Mm. And so... I think that this pretty clearly shows that the sons of God is pretty certainly talking about, div- you know, beings, divine beings in the spiritual realm, what we would tend to refer to as, as angels. Mm-hmm. And in these verses, it's reported that there's some kind of sexual immorality happening, some kind of immoral sexual union happening between mm-hmm. the angelic beings and the human women, which produces what the Bible calls Nephilim. Yeah. So... What, what would be a question that is raised from that? Yeah, I mean, the obvious question from a materialistic standpoint is how? Yeah. How, how would that be possible? How can right. an angel hybridize with a human? Right, right. How can a non-corporeal being right. have some kind of bodily interaction with, with a, a, an embodied human? And so hopefully we can kind of get into that mm-hmm. th- this episode and, and understand what it is that we think is going on here. Uh, we have to remember that all of this is like very tightly in the context that evil is ruining the world. Yeah. So right after, you know, right after this verse, there's the verse that we talked about last episode where it said that that God saw how corrupt the earth had become for the people on earth had corrupted their ways. Yes. And we talked about how a wooden translation in Hebrew would be, and God saw all, God saw the earth and behold, it was ruined. Yeah. So the sins of men... And the sins of the created divine beings in the spiritual realm uh, that are being talked about over over these verses has ruined the world. Mm. You know, we are the priesthood of creation. And so when we fall, the world falls with us. And so God is looking at the violence and he's looking at the 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 sexual immorality and he's looking at how all of that is destroying his world. And we talked last time about how he's grieved to his heart. Yeah. Instead of taking the world to further glory, humans are ruining the world in sin. And whatever's going on here with the Nephilim uh, is another example of this egregious sin yeah. that, that's occurring in the world that's ruining it, that's going to lead to the flood. And so we get to this, this word Nephilim, right, which yeah. is obviously not an English word. Yeah, we don't use that today. Right. And so that's because this is actually from the text. I, I do think it's interesting when you read the text, it kind of feels like we're supposed to know 
what yeah. Nephilim means. Right. And maybe, you know, for the Israelites, that was intuitive. Right. No, for us, a, it's not. That's a really good point. And I think what we're going to get to. Because it doesn't say, here's like. Here's what the Nephilim are. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it says these were the men of old. Right. Renowned. But then you're like, well, what was that? Right. Like, we have so many follow-up questions that it seems like it's not concerned about answering. So if you and I were, you know, recording this podcast and we started to talk about AI, artificial intelligence, chat GPT and all these things that we understand. And then let's say that civilization crumbles. And then a thousand years later from the ashes comes a new civilization and they have different things, right? Mm -hmm. And they, they read a text or a transcript or somehow get their hands on a recording and they hear us talking about a artificial intelligence AI, they're not going to know what that means. Absolutely. And you and I, when we talk about it, we're not going to explain it. Right. Because our 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 listeners and the people that we're addressing know what that means. Yeah. And so in the Bible, there's lots of this kind of stuff. Yeah. And so that's where the centuries and millennia of biblical scholarship really come in handy mm-hmm. because people have been trying to uncover meaning of things that aren't explained in the text because they didn't need to be at the time. Right. But now, 2,000 years later, they do need to be. Yeah, that's the that's one of the struggles of interacting with a text that old. Right. It's beautiful, and we see some really interesting things from different cultures because of that. But, you know, not all of this is intuitive to us. So. No, not yeah. at all. Not at all. And so I think that pretty simply, Nephilim is an Aramaic word that means giant. Oh, well, that makes sense. And so <laughs> the the reason that I say that is because I think we might have mentioned this last time, but because that's a strange thing that goes against our materialistic understanding of the world, lots of people have tried yeah. to come up with al- alternative theories for what that means. And so there's a Hebrew uh, verb, nafal, which means to fall. Okay. That you can see kind of has the same root mm-hmm. as nephilim, you know, the, the three consonant. Uh, root and so they've they've kind of tried to say that it it maybe it means like the fallen ones because mm. it comes from that Hebrew word, um, and you know the 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 problem with that there's a few problems. Number one is that it's in the wrong verb conjugation, so it would kind of mean like the way that it's written. It would mean to be the ones fallen upon, okay, <laughs> rather yeah. than like the fallen the ones, fallen ones, right? Um, and then the other one is that we have the Septuagint which is actually older than the, the Masoretic text yes. that is in the Hebrew. Yeah. And uh, through critical scholarship, they've mapped the, the Masoretic text back and have, have found that it's very, very accurate, mm-hmm. right? But the Greek text was like before the, the, the turn of the, the, the millennia. So yeah. like the Greek text goes back before, you know, the switch from, from B.C. to A.D. Yeah. And in the Greek text, this word is translated in Greek, as gigantes. Oh, well, that's... <laughs> Which means giant, well, that's right? giants. <laughs> and so, uh, at least the first century Israelites thought that yeah. this was giants. Which is much closer to the date of writing than we are right now. Absolutely. So, if anyone's going to have a better understanding of it, it's got to be people closer to that time frame. Right, right. Relatively closer. Yeah, so so there's a uh, the the okay. So here's kind of how we we sort of figured this out linguistically because I, I think language is interesting. Yeah, so I hope this doesn't bore people, but but I think this is interesting. Um, the the one of the fascinating things about Hebrew is that we don't have very many examples of Hebrew that's older than the Bible. Oh, interesting. So there's just like the the biblical Hebrew 
is the most ancient Hebrew that we have, really. Mm-hmm. I think we have some some other stuff, but but not a lot. And so what you have to do in that case is you have to try to, through archaeological discoveries and all that kind of thing, um, either find you know new Hebrew that you didn't that you hadn't found before that can help shed some light on stuff, or you find cognate languages. So an example of a cognate language would be like Italian and Spanish. Yeah, sure. So maybe you don't speak Spanish, but and you but you are you're an Italian person and your native tongue is mm-hmm. Italian. You're going to listen to a Spanish person speak and you're going to like almost understand them. Yeah. Because it's the same root language and so mm-hmm. there's lots of words that are the same, there's lots of sounds that are the same, the alphabet is similar. Um, in a different way you can get this in English with Spanish for some things. Sure. And you can get this in English with German for some things yeah. and French for some things. And and so this this is a way that you can kind of uh, gain an understanding of a word because maybe you discover, you know, hypothetically this this text in Spanish and it helps you understand what this, this word is mm. that is a cognate to this Italian word. And you didn't know what that Italian word was. Well, now yeah. because you can map those over each other, you can kind of understand what that word is. And so the, the same is true of ancient languages, except it tends to be more difficult because the languages are dead. No one speaks them anymore. No one speaks them yeah. anymore. And so there's a lot of words in the Hebrew Bible where, honestly, people were just guessing for a while. Sure. There are some very strange translations in the King James. And I know some people are like really like the King James Version, and I do not disparage the King James Version, but it's it's old. Yeah. I think it was like the 1500s. Yeah. And uh, basically what happened was in the, the 1900s, like I think in, I don't know, like 1928 or something like that, they uncovered uh, um, an ancient city called Ugarit, which is on the Mediterranean coast of Syria. And the language that they spoke was Ugaritic. And what they found was that Ugaritic is a cognate language of Hebrew. Oh, and so there's lots that was uncovered in that archaeological dig mm. and from the documents that they found and from receipts that they found and from all kinds of things, that, you know, things that were written on stone and walls and everything, um, that they were able to take that and then map that on the biblical language and figure out with a lot more clarity and precision what many of these Hebrew words mean. Interesting. So all of that to say that Aramaic which is actually what, you know, probably the common language of Jesus and his disciples were at the time, but it's an ancient language of the region. Aramaic is also a cognate language of Hebrew. Mm. So there's an Aramaic word, Nephilim, with an N, that means giant. Oh. Right. Well, there you go. And so that's kind of why uh, scholarly consensus is that Nephilim means giant. Yeah. You know, again, perhaps it means something else. Right. But I think that it's it's the most reasonable thing to to assume through all of that that through our un- discovery of language and all that that it means. Yeah, sure. Giant. Hmm. Um and so you know, what we're going to see is that this understanding helps us understand much of the rest of the Old Testament. Hmm. Um I would argue that the existence of the Nephilim whatever that means is specifically what's happening in the conquest narrative, where the people of God go into the land of Canaan and they're told to exterminate certain people. Yeah. And we get all bent out of shape about that, which I think that's a good instinct to have. 
Uh, and what and I think what we're going to see, you know, is that that the who they are exterminating are what I would call Nephilim tribes. Yeah, giant clans. What we'll get to in Joshua. And and we'll get to that. Yeah, yeah. yeah in at the end of the Torah, and then into Joshua, and then all the way through David. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, David is famous for defeating who? A giant. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so so this is important, right? This is not just nerdy stuff that we're doing. It's important to the story to understand what it is that we're talking about. And Mm so, uh, like the English word giant, Nephilim does often refer to something that's large in size, right? Um, But it can also mean something like tyrant or bully. Oh, interesting. In terms of the way that the word is used. Um, We still do this kind of thing in our language, Right. Yeah. Like when I say that Shakespeare was a literary giant. Yeah. Like you would not be like, He's he was re- giant? He was, he was really huge. tall? I didn't know a that. huge guy? Yeah. You, you know, we know what that means. It means that right. he was, you know, had some kind of substantial impact. Sure. In, in, his, in his field. And uh, when, when I say that there's a, a, a tyrannical ruler, you know, in, in a country that is not allied with the United States, we tend to call them strongmen. Yeah. A strong man ruler. That does not actually talking about his physical strength. Sure. Right. It's talking about how he is. He's a yeah. tyrant. He's despotic. Um, and so, uh, you know, all of that is going on with this word. Mm. Right. What we're going to see is that it does seem to be that there's some kind of size implications with this because we're going to get to David and Goliath and we're going to get to the the reactions of the Hebrew spies when they go into the land of Canaan. They're like, we do not want to go in there. Those guys are huge. They're huge. Yeah. Right? So there is some kind of size implication, but there is also definitely this implication of being a tyrant, being a bully, being oppressive, and being evil. Mm, that That word can mean in in almost the same way that you and I use words like that in in, in English. Mm. Um, And so the question that you asked at the beginning is, can angels reproduce with women? Can spiritual beings create hybrid beings with humans? Mm. And so in order to understand what's going on here, I think, okay, now this is something that has been outlined for me by a scholar named Father Stephen DeYoung, He's an Orthodox scholar and has a book called um, The Religion of the Apostles and a book called God is a Man of War and a podcast called The Lord of Spirits. And so kind of like Michael Heiser, who I've mentioned before, but from an Eastern Orthodox perspective, his one of his understandings is that the key to unlocking the Old Testament is to understand the spiritual stuff that we tend to ignore. Yeah. So the divine counsel, which we've talked about before, the serpent in the mm-hmm. garden as in fallen angel, and then the this what we're going to talk about here with the giant clans. Yeah, I think this certainly reiterates that we can't skip over it. I mean, think of how much of the Bible we've covered so far and how much of that has been unpacking spiritual ideas. Yeah. So yeah, if we continue central. to ignore it, it's just absurd. It's an absurd idea to leave out that much of the Bible. Right, right. And yeah, so it's it's essential in, in, in understanding. So hopefully this helps us understand mm-hmm. this part of it. Um, the, the biblical story, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, as we would call it, is in conversation with other ancient Near Eastern mythological stories. Okay. 
And so that freaks us out a little bit, right? People don't sure. like when I say that. And so, you know, I, I, I would say that it makes sense because, you know, what, what they are attributing meaning to events that they believe happened and other cultures have experienced these events themselves sure. and they attribute meaning depending on what they, how they, what they think it means and how they attribute meaning depends on, in a large part, what kind of God they worship yeah, and what has been revealed to them from, from, from the gods. And so in the, there's, there's a Babylonian flood story, mm. right? There's a Babylonian creation story. Mm-hmm. There's Babylonian stories about conquests. Um, in fact, when you talk about flood stories, here's what's interesting. Almost every ancient culture has a flood story. Yeah, I've heard that before. It's so fascinating. So like I'm talking African cultures, yeah. you know, like, um, like heart of African cultures, I'm talking about Egyptian culture has a flood story. Native American cultures all the way over here have flood stories. The Choctaw, the Hopi, the Inuit have stories that have to do with the giant flood. The Mayans down in the the Mesoamerica, uh, uh, you know, tribes have a flood story. The Incas have a flood story. Um, There's flood stories in China and Korea and Malaysia and Persia and India. Almost every single culture that we've uncovered has a flood story. And these flood stories, not all of them are, are, you know, can be mapped onto each other, but, but they tend to have to do with a massive flood where only a small remnant of people were left. Yeah. And uh, most ancient cultures also have giant stories. Hmm. So the Greeks have giant stories, which we know some of these stories. The, the Celts in modern day, like Ireland, Scotland, have uh, giant stories. The Germanic tribes have giant stories. Tribes from Southeast Asia have giant stories. And then all the way over here in Mesoamerica, Mm. there's giant stories in their ancient mythology. And so there's two ways to look at this. Um, For some reason, we moderns tend to look at it like this. Okay, since many ancient cultures tell the same kind of story, that proves it isn't true. (laughs) (laughs) It's literally how we think about it. Yeah, They must be copying each other. Right. Because they're like silly and ancient and archaic and <laughs> stupid is basically what we're saying, right? Yeah. We, we wouldn't phrase it like that, but mm-hmm. that's kind of what we're saying. And this is, again, what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. We think that we're really, really smart, and we think that they're really, really dumb. Now, that may not be true. Right. Because I don't understand why you would come to that conclusion. You have a bunch of ancient cultures from all over the world who tell the same kind of story. Yeah. And our interpretation of that is, oh, well, since they all have this experience and they all tell the story, it must be fake. That's a very strange conclusion to come to for me. Like, I think it's... Yeah, I agree. ...much more reasonable to say something along the lines of, well, since all these cultures are telling the same story, maybe something like maybe that Maybe really something happen. big happened. Sure. And what that looks like and how it's recorded. You know, again, the Bible's not a history book. It's not a science book. And it is recording specifically the theological meaning of events and revelation, what's been revealed through the events. And so, you know, what a flood like this actually looked like and what it actually was, you know, that, that of course, is something that it's really hard for us to understand. But some kind of massive flood that changed the, the world. civilization. Yeah. Perhaps, you know, multiple floods, if you take these other cultures and time frames and everything, that this kind of thing seems to have happened. Hmm. And every culture 
is ascribing some kind of different meaning to it. They're in conversation with each other about why it happened. They all agree that it happened. Mm-hmm. The ancient they're Babylon- all interpreting right. why it happened. Sure, the, the ancient Babylonians and the ancient Hebrews took for granted that there was a giant flood. That's not the conversation. Yeah, the conversation is what did it mean? Yeah, who was behind it? Yeah, why did it happen? And what what are we supposed to do after that? Mm. Um, you know, the way that the Bible interacts with these other stories is basically the same way that it talks about the serpent in the garden. The serpent takes something that's true and then misinterprets it, twists it. Mm-hmm. And so, okay, you have this, you have this story of a flood. Uh, you can interpret that all kinds of different ways. What the Bible claims is that through the revelation of the true God, Yahweh, they have the correct interpretation of the yeah. story. And the Babylonians have a flood story because they experienced the same thing. And guess what? Their interpretation of it is wrong because they worship demons. Yeah. Not Yahweh. Yeah. And so they're being tricked. It's like the the way that that these cultures are interacting with each other is almost like the Hebrew scriptures are saying that these other stories that these other people are telling about creation and about the the flood, mm. they're like pro demon propaganda. Yeah, pro false god propaganda. And the Bible is interacting with them in a way that's corrective and true. Yeah, they're setting the record straight. Because they have the revelation from the one true God. Yeah. You know, if I were to write a book on World War II and I was and I was able to get that published, nobody would read that book and be like, There was a war there was a war like that? No. <laughs> I mean, maybe like if you're like a child. Yeah. But like no adult would read it and be like, Oh, I'm now discovering for the first time that there was a war called World War II. Sure. Right. What I would be doing is I would be offering some kind of perspective or take on the truth and the meaning or something that other perspectives had been missing. Yeah, that's a good point because a lot of more recent historical events are still disputed in terms of meaning, in terms of occurrence, you know, reason for why they happened. That's still going on. So it makes sense that this would still be happening, you know, way back when. Yes. And like you said, um, that they don't, they don't point out like, okay, actually, if you want to read about this, this flood. Yeah. The Babylonians have this story and this tribe has this story and all these people are saying, like, because it's taken for granted. Right. Like, just like we said about all of the things that have referenced, like, this is common knowledge if you're reading this. Yeah, of course there was a flood. I knew that. Right. And so the same thing, I think, holds for these stories about giants. Mm Mm-hmm. Right, that that there's some kind of fascination in these ancient cultures with these with giant stories, and you can interpret that in multiple ways. I think that maybe one of the ways to interpret it that makes sense is like, yeah, maybe there's something to it. Yeah, sure. And so the question is, what does it mean? Mm-hmm. And that's what we're going to get into now. Um, there was some literature that was discovered in Qumran in the West Bank of Israel, and we as Christians know this community, they're they're called the Essenes, and this discovery is called the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the Essenes were people who had withdrawn during the the Second Temple period into the desert caves outside of Jerusalem, Israel, because they thought that the temple was corrupt. And this is actually, we're not going to get into this because it's very boring, but they also did, they believed that in a different calendar. 
Oh. And one of the main reasons for their break from the temple was because of a conflict involving the calendar. Oh, interesting. Which calendar was divinely inspired. Hmm. And so anyways, the point is that they went off into the wilderness. Uh, They were kind of like, I guess you might call them like fundamentalists, Hmm. like very strict. They thought that because Herod was involved in the temple, it was corrupt. And so Hmm. none of the sacrifices were doing what the sacrifices were supposed to do. God had abandoned the temple because of it's, it's unclean. And they, in their community, in their caves, were the true people of God. Hmm. And so because they were in caves, the stuff that they had has lasted like a really long time. Yeah. And so the documents, the Dead Sea Scrolls that they've uncovered, they attribute to like 100 to 300 years prior to the life of Christ. Wow. So you're talking about, you know, centuries before the, the, um, the A.D., era. Wow. Really, really old. Mm-hmm. Some some of the oldest ancient documents that we actually have. Uh, but they weren't discovered until the 1950s. So it's crazy. Very, very new. Yeah. You know, the Dead Sea Scrolls is like really new, groundbreaking archaeological discovery. Mm. And in these documents, there's books like First Enoch, which you may have heard of. And there's yeah. books like the Book of the Giants. Interesting. And so these were uh, Jewish intertestamental period works. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not canonized, mm-hmm. but these were things that people were reading at the time. And they shed a lot of light on what Genesis 4 through 6 is, is, is interacting with, mm-hmm. the, the Babylonian tradition that okay. Genesis 4 through 6 is interacting with. And so in the Babylonian tradition, there's a group of seven gods called the Apkalu, and so these are like the main gods who give wisdom and technological advance to people. So pretty similar to what we see in the story of Cain, where his offspring bring technology forward. That's a good point. That's a classic strain of every ancient story of progress. Uh, and every king that was listed in this list of kings, there's six kings that reigned before the flood, and each king is listed with one of the seven gods as their advisor. Oh, Okay. So it would be like, this king had this god, and so it brought forth technology advance in, you know, astrology. Hmm. This king had this god, and it brought forth this technological advance of metallurgy or magic or, you know, whatever. Hmm. Some kind of technology that, that brings things forward. And when you get into the Greek myths, you have the same type of thing. You have the story of Prometheus. It's a god who gives fire to humans. And so there's this idea that the technological advances of mankind are given to them from the knowledge of the gods. They know more than we do. Mm. So they give us these advances and push civilization forward. Um, In all the other stories of the ancient world, the fact that the gods do this is shown to be awesome. Like the gods are the heroes. Because they've broken from this hierarchy and they've given humans things to bring the civilization forward. Sure. And to be able to manipulate the natural world and to be able to have knowledge of good and evil in certain ways. But as you can see in the biblical story with Adam and even Cain, it's it's interpreted differently. The giving of this wisdom is evil. Yeah, apart from God. So who gives them the knowledge of good and evil in the garden? Yeah, the serpent. Satan. Right. So... Prometheus is a hero in the Greek myths for giving humans fire. Mm. Satan is, I mean, literally the devil for for tempting humans to try to take what was not yet theirs to have. Yeah. 
And so by, you know, and then in the story of Cain, we talked about how the ability to use iron and steel and metal is not a bad thing in and of itself. You can use things to cultivate crops with it. You can do good things, but it's also how you make weapons of war. Yeah. And so in the scriptures, that giving of wisdom that is not yet ready for, that all the other stories of the ancient world, you say that the gods are heroes for doing that. In the Bible, um, those are the works of demons Mm. who are giving that to humans to destroy them. Yeah. And it's quite interesting because we do tend to destroy ourselves. Yeah, that's fascinating. Right? They want to increase wickedness. Things like herding and metallurgy and music and architecture, all of these can be good things, but like we talked about, it can also lead to destruction and death mm-hmm. and idolatry. And so the Bible interacts with these stories as if these are rebellious fallen gods who are giving things to humans, interacting with humans um, in order to destroy them. Mm-hmm. Just like you see with the serpent in the garden. Yeah. Right? It's so easy to read that story and to romanticize it and be like, well, it's kind of nice. I mean, the serpent wanted to give them the knowledge of good and evil. Like, that's a good thing, right? <laughs> yeah. According to the Bible, no, because it leads to death. Right. And um, this is the pro demon propaganda that the Hebrew people would say all these other stories yeah. are, are putting forth. So, in terms of these Apkalu, who are advising the kings. The first post-flood king has an Apkalu listed as an advisor. And then the following kings, like Gilgamesh. Have you ever heard of the Epic of Gilgamesh? Yeah. That was one of the things that was discovered. Um, I actually think it, that, that might have been discovered um, in the uh, the in Ugarit. Oh, okay. And, and so it's really old, mm. right? And it has a flood story in there, and it has the story of of a guy named Gilgamesh. And Gilgamesh is said to be two-thirds Apkalu. Okay. Two-thirds God, one-third human, hmm. which is strange. When you think of reproduction, yeah. you <laughs> think of two people. Yeah. So you're half your mom and you're half your dad. Right. The third thing is strange, but that's how he's described, right? And um, he's the he's the product of human and divine coupling that you see reported in Genesis 6. Interesting. And so the book of giants, which like I said is not a Babylonian document, but it's a 2nd century BC way before Christ Jewish book actually identifies Gilgamesh as a Nephilim. It calls him a Nephilim. Fascinating. So I'm, so we're piecing all these things together. I know that this is kind of a long process, but I I think this is all interesting if you like history. Um and you see similar elements in the other mythologies. And so, like I said, it's, this happens in the Greek myths. There's wars against giants, which is called Gigantomachy. And you have heroes like Achilles, who's supposed to be part divine. Yeah. What does that mean? What does it mean that Gilgamesh was one-third human, two-thirds God? Hmm. Okay. So with this perspective in mind, the biblical authors are saying that these so-called gods, these beings that the Babylonians call Apkalu, what Yahweh worshipers would call demons, yeah, um, are fallen angels, and the heroes or the mighty men of old are like petty tyrants who are produced by whatever this divine fornication is, mm-hmm. this demonic fornication of gods and women, and you get a this human that's two thirds god, one third human, and 
the reason that this is important ethically in the Bible is because the two main sins of the Old Testament are happening here. Okay. Idolatry and sexual immorality. Hmm. So what you'll see throughout the scriptures of the Old Testament is that idolatry and sexual immorality are the two sins that pollute the ground. Hmm. So if you bring an idol into the temple, it doesn't just have to be removed. The temple has to be cleansed. If your tribe is involved in egregious sexual immorality outside of what God has, has prescribed, it's polluting the entire ground, the entire nation. Hmm. So what is it when there's some kind of divine fornication happening with fallen angels and women? It's idolatry and this like really intense sexual immorality yeah. where the, the bounds between the spiritual and the earthly are being crossed and, mm. and, and all of that. And so the Nephilim are, are, are going to be shown as living examples of these sins. Mm. And so you're going to see these giants show up again and again, and the conquest narratives are specifically Yahweh's call for the people to annihilate the giants. And so it's not really a call to uh, annihilate the, the normal Canaanite foreigners, but it's a call to annihilate what is called like giant clans. Yeah. Clans that come from this kind of like Gilgamesh type two-thirds uh, God, one-third human. Okay, so, so so let's talk about that. All right. In the, in the Bible, in Deuteronomy 3, chapters 1 through 11, there's a, a story about a Canaanite king named Og. <laughs> O.G. <laughs> Another another candidate for, another, for our future children. Yeah, put that names. put that in the the name bank. Any yeah. of you who are listening, <laughs> and uh, in in Numbers twenty one verses thirty one through thirty five, there's a brief description of the defeat of Og, and Og is identified as a giant. the The tribe in the Old Testament is called the Raphaite or a Raphaim, and this is a giant clan. And at the end of the the section I talked about before, Deuteronomy three one through eleven. This king's gigantic bed is described. Huh. And so it's nine cubits long and four cubits wide. Now, a cubit is not actually an exact unit of measurement, and so there's some kind of variation on how, how big it is, but it's something like 13 to 15 feet long and six to seven feet wide. Wow. So it's, it's a giant bed. It's a bed mm. for a giant, right? It's a bed for someone who's like 15 feet tall. And... The dimensions that are described in the Bible pretty much exactly match the dimensions of ritual beds that were uncovered in ancient temples in Babylon. Interesting. And so there's a site called Edmononki, and the, the great temple or the, the ziggurat of ancient Babylon was uncovered. And the reason that this is important is because these beds were used for pagan sexual rituals. Hmm. And so the dimensions would be for someone who's 12 to 15 feet tall. And in ancient documents that they've uncovered that talk about what happens when a god shows up, one of the bodies that is tended to describe a god is a body that's something like 15 feet tall. Interesting. So something that would fit into one of these beds. Mm. So what's happening in these, these sexual rituals? Like if you had a video camera, what would be going on in these kinds of rituals on these giant beds. So there's a king who's almost always also the high priest. 
mm, in these okay. ancient cultures. So he's he's in charge of the worship and he rules the nation. Oh, okay. Right? And so uh, during the festal cycles, you know, at some points, the 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 king or the high priest both would ritually embody the god that they were worshiping. Okay. So you know, idol worship. Sure, we've talked about that before. Gods have to embody something. Yeah. Well, they can also embody someone. Yeah. Right, which you see today, even with things like demon possession. Yeah, absolutely. Right? They can embody a, a being, especially if they're invited in. And so um, they would embody the God that they were worshiping, and then they would do these rituals, mm. these sexual rituals that had to do with sacrifices, probably blood drinking, um, sometimes human sacrifice, the wearing of a mask, and then ritual sex with a temple prostitute in mm. one of these giant beds. Well, why are they doing this in the giant bed? Well, because the giant God has embodied become embodied in the human. Mm. And so this would bring about, you know, fertility for crops. It would consummate the relationship between the God and the people and things like this. Now, if a child was conceived out of this ritual, then think about what that child would, would think about what his quote unquote ancestry would be. Interesting. Yeah. You have the king who's considered a God. Then he's embodying whatever God they're worshiping. Right. It's two gods, and he's in relations with the temple prostitute who's a human. Mm. And so that child would be two-thirds God, one-third human. Just like Gilgamesh. Just like Gilgamesh. Interesting. Or you could flip it, where the king, um, you know, the, the temple prostitute embodies the God. Sure. And the, 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 and the king, and so sure. you have two-thirds, one-third yeah. again, right? And so... This is where the one-third human, two-thirds divine thing comes from. The king is divine, the god is divine, the prostitute is human, or something like that. And so you have this extreme idolatry and sexual immorality according to the way that the Hebrew people view the world through Yahweh. And this ritual produces giants, mm -hmm. Nephilim, right? Two-thirds god, one-third human. It's yeah. like hybridized beings. So the reason that this is important is because, you know, I think what this says, if this is true, is that, you know, a demon or a spirit cannot hybridize with a human. Mm. That's not the way that, that it is, right? But, but ancient people didn't really have a concept of DNA and genetics in that sense. And so the, this ritual that we just talked about, you can see how in, in that understanding it could produce a one-third human, two-third God. Sure. And this was obviously such a typical practice of the pagan people that the Bible doesn't even explain it. Yeah, it seems, again, like we're supposed to know a little bit about the background. Right. Yeah. And you might think, well, how would the people of the Bible know so much about this? Like, I understand that the other cultures were practicing it, but um, they didn't have technology. It's hard to travel, right? And sure. so how do, how, does the, how do they understand the culture so well? But you have to remember that according to the biblical story itself, Abraham comes from where? Babylon. Yeah. Comes from Ur. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, but, which, is, which is Babylon. Okay, yeah. So Abraham is like, a, he's a Babylonian. Sure, yeah. Who then God calls out and starts. Yeah. So he would be obviously he and then his progeny would be well familiar with this kind of well, and sexual what, practice. What is one of the, like, the 
continuation, like the continual sins of the Israelites and their kings is that they're bringing other cultures Idolatry. into their own, yeah. right? And, and those those wives of Solomon, mm-hmm. those other cultures that intermarry, you know, these people from the other cultures yeah. start to set up their own, yeah. you know, their their own temples to their own gods. Yeah, you know, it's funny. We we look at those stories and we're like, we kind of like try to make it seem like God's like racist. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. He's setting up these, like, don't intermarry with these other cultures. Yeah. And it's like, because God doesn't like those other cultures. And it's like, no, it's because he knows that you'll worship their gods. Yeah. Because you always do. Yeah. Right? I yeah. mean, it's like, uh, and, and so you you see this as we go on. Now, look, so, so that ritual that I just described that creates these sort of like hybrid humans, gods, Nephilim, um, this is not something that is only you know, beholden to the biblical text. You see this throughout the the ancient Near Eastern culture. You see it in Egyptian ritual texts. You see this practice in Sumerian ritual texts. Um, you, you you see it in, in the Aztecs and the Toltec, in the, in the Mesoamerican texts. And so this was something that happened. Hmm. You know, the reason that there's been, you know, there were temple prostitutes in every single religion until Christianity sort of took over the world is because of this. Yeah. Hmm. The 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 temple and fertility and sexuality was tied with the gods in such a way that they would have these kinds of festive, mm-hmm. you know, and and they actually think in in when they make the golden calf, it says in our translations, and then they danced. In the other in the older translation, it says, and then there was revelry. Mm. They, they think you know what's going on is they're they're participating in some kind ritual. of rituals, yeah. ritualistic sex like the pagans, hmm. like the Egyptian culture that they just came from. Yeah. Right. Um, and so, you know, this is this is all over the place. Uh, it is actually true that even into the modern day, so I don't think it happens anymore, this same type of thing would happen when the Japanese emperor would, would on his, like, succession day. Interesting. Yeah. So... Um, I think it's reasonable to conclude, since you see it all over the world, that this actually happens and that this actually happened and that demons or spirits or sons of God were involved in this kind of ritualistic way. Mm. And they were producing, you know, um, they were producing beings that are straying further and further away from the image of God. Yeah. And, and veering ever closer to the image of the demons that mm. are participating in these things, like quite literally, right? Um, we've talked about this before, but like why, why are the demons doing this? Mm. Why are they trying to destroy people? Why are they trying to deform and disfigure the human race? And I think that the answer to that question is because God created man in his own image and they're called to image him. And they're called to bring the works of God into creation and to bring the glory of God into creation. By imaging him, humans become like him. Mm. Um, The devil falls because of jealousy. Yeah. He's jealous of us. That our destiny as humans is to become united with God in the incarnation of Jesus Mm. Christ, which is higher than the sons of God in the angelic realms. And so they fall because of that is is in typical Christian tradition. And so his goal and the goal of his host is to destroy us. Mm-hmm. And what they do is, you know, they show up and they reveal things that we aren't ready for. They show up in these idolatrous sexual rituals 
And in so doing, they make us like them. Hmm. They start to try to malform us into their image hmm. rather than living into the image of God that we actually are. And so the, you know, the evil one and his host lie and trick us to become something opposite of what we're supposed to become. And a giant or a Nephilim that's conceived in this way and then lives as a petty tyrant is the embodiment of the opposite of what humans are supposed to become. Mm. It's a human in the image of a demon rather than a human in the image of God. Mm. And so, you know, in the incarnation, the opposite happens where God becomes like us instead of us trying to become like God, which is why they took the apple which is why they accept the technological advances from the gods, which is why they build the Tower of Babel, because we want to become like God. What happens in the incarnation? God becomes like us. God becomes like us so that we might actually become like him. Yeah. Not like these demons that, that, that they're promising us, right? And so, you know, these, these mighty men, these, these men of renown mm-hmm. um, are Nephilim. They're, they're tyrants. Yeah. They use violence and evil. This and, reminds me of of the way that Lamech talked about, mm. Lamech talked about, you know, his conquest that these men of renown yeah. were talked about with maybe, maybe you know, renown and, and triumph, but because might was right at the time. Absolutely. Right? And so if you're the biggest guy, you win in a way. You know, look, we, we think that Hitler was demonic and evil. Right. In our modern world, because he killed so many innocent people. Julius Caesar was first called a god when he had killed a million Gauls and enslaved a million more. Yeah. It used to be like a sign of strength yeah. and conquest. And yeah. when you when you think about the world population at that time versus World War II, that's like Crazy. Oh, a lot of the world. Yeah. And because he did that, because that violence and triumph of might, he is raised to the level of a god. Because yeah they're becoming in the image of the demons mm. rather than what you see in Christ, which is he comes as a baby, humility, and peace. And, and what an interesting commentary on what, you know, these people, if if you think someone like Caesar for killing a million mm. is becoming more like God, what an interesting commentary on what your God must be like. Right. Right? Absolutely. That in order to become like God— their version, little G God, mm-hmm. or this this demon, is to, is to kill and destroy until you become more and more like him. And like we talked about in Genesis 3, what is the only thing that those demons are in charge of? Death. Death, yeah. It's all they have. You know, we, we, we talked about this um, maybe before, you know, we've preached on this, but the fact that the, that the evil overcomes Christ on the cross is what destroys evil. Yeah. And the question is, so why did evil do that? And the answer is because it doesn't know how to do anything else. Mm. It can only kill and destroy. And so that's all that it has. And so when you look at petty tyrants, when you look at, at oppressive dictators and despots, what is it ultimately that they end up bringing? Yeah. Death and Death. destruction. Because they're becoming like the image of the demons. Yeah. And there's something very profound about an ancient text like the Bible putting that into perspective in such a way that says, if you accept these gifts, if you move in this direction, um, you may find 
power for a moment. But if you're becoming like a demon, your ultimate destination is death and destruction. Yeah. Because it's all wow. that they can promise you. Mm-hmm. And that's why, you know, Hitler, somebody like Hitler, moved in extreme power and gained an extreme amount of power very, very quickly. How mm-hmm. is he remembered? Only in infamy. Right. Not even allowed to be spoken of in his own country. Right. You know, same with Joseph Stalin. Same with you know, the Khmer Rouge. We were just yeah. in Cambodia, right? Um, the, 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 the Christian revolution of morality has made it so that actually might is not right. Yeah. And even though might can be right for a moment, at the end of the day, it's not because that's not what we're supposed to become. We're not supposed to become embodiments of the bringers of death like the demons. We're supposed to become embodiments of peace and love and life. Yeah. Like the images were always supposed to be and like was ultimately displayed in in Christ. Mm. So, you know, these Nephilim are products of this kind of immoral sexual ritual that's happening between kings or royalty or the king's court or the priesthood of these these pagan cultures and uh, gods embodying them and then having sex with temple prostitutes. Yeah. And um, were they actually giants? Were they huge in size? I'd say in some ways, yes. Yeah. Seems like it, right? There's actually a dispute because in the Hebrew text... Goliath is nine foot nine. In the Greek, he's six foot six. Which, you know, if you were six foot six and I think the average height at the time was like five feet tall. Yeah, that's interesting too. Then you yeah. would be you'd be a giant, right? But maybe he was nine foot nine. I don't know. The the point is that it seems like there was some kind of size component to these sure. to these clans, but but that's not the only thing that's going on here. You know, the, these kings, these mighty ones, these men of renown, to people that they are not on their side, they're not good. Yeah. They're oppressive and they're violent and they're monstrous if they're opposed to you. And so um, this, I think, is what's going on. And I understand that's difficult to unearth all of these ancient texts that have to do yeah. with ritual worship and ritual sexual immorality and all this stuff in order to try to come to the understanding of what is a a, a Nephilim. But I think that because of what has been able to be uncovered, it does seem pretty clear to me that it's something like this, Hmm. that it is something about the two chief sins of idolatry and sexual immorality being embodied in these pagan rituals Hmm. that that can produce children who are then thought of as being part divine, part human. Yeah. The sons of God come into the daughters of men and produce the Nephilim. Mm. Um, yeah. And again, if we talk about, you know, the story aspect of this, again and again, we will see that, like, the two repeated sins mm-hmm. in Israel becomes idolatry and sexual immorality. Yes. Absolutely. It's what destroys them. Yeah. And idolatry is is talked about in a sexual way with the prophets. Yeah. They, yeah. You know, that we don't we actually don't translate it like this because mm. it's offensive, but the actual translation of of the Israelites chasing other gods is they're whoring after other gods. Yes. Right? Yeah. Because they're that's so connected. Yeah. And if you're going to worship another god at that time, 
or another nation's gods, there's going to be these kinds of practices involved. Yeah. Right? It's not the same kind of worship that the Israelites had. Mm -hmm. And so if you want the fertility god to do what the fertility god does, you have to interact with that god in a certain way. Mm -hmm. Right? And so um, it is not like we think of this stuff because of our modern day, like, like you're a Christian and you go, like you stop going to the Christian church and you go to like the Hindu temple and you just like go there and worship. That's not exactly in a ritualistic culture what we're talking about. Yeah. You're talking about taking on the whole ritual of that, of that people. Uh, in the ancient world, they, they didn't really, they actually didn't really assume that you were a part of the tribe because of your genetics. There is that component because of the genealogies and because you know who your father is and your grandfather, but inclusion into uh, a a social unit is defined ritualistically. Mm. So you see this even with the Hebrew people. You can become an Israelite. Guess what you have to do if you're a male? Yeah, become circumcised. Yeah, you got to get circumcised. Yeah. Um, um, At the Passover, you have to take the blood and put it over your doorframe. Well, what if an Egyptian takes the blood and put it, puts it over the doorframe? Well, they're included Saved. in the people of God. Right. And that's why it says that they left Egypt with a strange multitude. Yes. Yeah. Because it wasn't just Hebrews. It was everyone who had put themselves into the ritual practices and worship of the people. Yeah. Um, there's a, uh, a, a really important figure in, at the end of the Torah and then into Joshua named Caleb. And Caleb is actually called a Kenizzite in Numbers 32. Hmm. And so he's, a, he's, he's not an ethnic Israelite. But by the time we get to Joshua 15, he becomes an elder of Israel. Hmm. Well, why? Well, because he's a faithful part of the community that includes all the worship and ritual that happens in Israel. Yeah. And so, um, you know, the, the, I think that is the answer to how there becomes giant clans. Because not every person in that clan is going to be a product of this divine sexual ritual. Yeah. But they are all participants in it in a ritualistic sense, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's there's these these giant clans. You know, when when you read through the Old Testament, you see things like Amalek and uh, uh, Amalek. In, in Genesis 36 is where he's mentioned. He's an offspring of Esau. I think he's Esau's grandson. And uh, or, or Esau's grandson conceives Amalek. Okay. And the way that he conceives Amalek is with a concubine named Lotan. Mm-hmm. And Lotan is the Canaanite word that describes what we translate as Leviathan. Interesting. Which is an ancient god of chaos. Mm-hmm. So, so, so what does that mean? It means that his lineage connects him to one of these rituals that we're talking about. Yeah. And Amalek is defined as the head of one of the giant clans. Mm-hmm. And so it's this demonic sexual immorality that produces Amalek and that makes him a, a, a Nephilim. And this is what the, the people that they're fighting in those conquest stories are. And so the reason that this is important is because when we get to those stories, um, God tells the Israelites to wipe out the Amalekites. Mm. But what we just talked about in terms of ritual, wiping out the Amalekites may have to do with killing them all or you know enveloping them into your ritual life yeah so that they're no longer that anymore mm-hmm. right 
And that's why you see these stories where it's like they utterly slaughtered all of the Canaanites. And then the very next verse, it's like, and then there were Canaanites living amongst them. And it's like, what, what, yeah. what happened here? It's <laughs> like, well, because the, the commands that God is giving that have to do with extermination is extermination of the giants, mm. of this thing that we just talked about, right? And so um, the question you know, people ask the question, so so don't get mad at me for being nerdy about answering it. The question, what the heck is going on with the Nephilim? Yeah. I think this is the best answer that I've come to. Sure. Right? Is that it is some kind of mighty men who are led by um, products of this ancient sexual ritual with temple prostitutes and gods on a giant bed. Much of which has been uncovered yeah. in archaeological discoveries and in texts of other books and other cultures and in texts of first first temple Judaism or second temple Judaism, and uh, um, yeah, that's that's kind of where the whole thing comes from. I think, I think. Now I know it doesn't answer every question, sure, but at least it helps us understand what does it mean for a, a son of God, an angel a spiritual being to reproduce with a human woman. Yeah. I think it means something like those rituals that we talked about. Mm. And the the spiritual aspect or consequence of that is that you start to have these beings who are created in the image of a demon, mm. or at least towards the image of a demon rather than the image of God. Yeah. And then the grand reversal of the incarnation is the exact opposite. Yeah. Yeah. And might I say that in our own way, in our own lives, we we struggle with idolatry as well. And even though we don't partake in this ritual, per se, we certainly partake in the, the deformation of ourselves. Absolutely. And all that sin and what I would call the ritual of sin leads to. Oh, yeah. You know, m- again, like the word zeitgeist is so interesting. Yeah. Because it's, it, the ghost is in the word, the ghost of the time, the spirit of the time. You know, the spirit of the time is individualistic self-expression, mm-hmm. right? And so, you know, look, when we give ourselves to that and when we say, well, we, we can do whatever we want because that's who I am, mm-hmm. that, that is idolatry. Yeah. Right? In of a self. very, very yeah. real sense. And so, you know, there's all kinds of things in our culture that are just as idolatrous as this. Like we we think about actually I don't even know if we do anymore, but but you know, there's a time where you think about ritual sex or something like that. It's like crazy. Mm-hmm. But you know, look, I mean, so much of the way that we treat sex has to do with how we feel about ourselves mm-hmm. and trying to confirm certain things about ourselves and mm-hmm. trying to express ourselves in a certain way, which is serving something other than God. Yeah. Right. Because, you know, marriage in the Christian sense, sex can serve God. Um, But in most of the ways that we talk about sex, it's serving something or someone else. Yeah. And so, yeah, you you still see this kind of stuff today for sure. And you see it with the way that we treat money. Money is a God. And you see it with the way that we treat all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. For sure. Identity. All, all of that can become this kind of thing. And so the, the warnings to us remain the same, you know. Yeah, this is not a tale to look at and say, wow, can't believe they did that. Right. I would never. 
we're doing it in our own way. We do. And and so, like I said about kind of like um, becoming like a, a, a demon in this like very specific way of like a, a sexual ritual involving a temple prostitute and stuff, uh, Christian tradition teaches that you also become like a demon when you worship those gods. Yeah. And so like, you know, let's just say if you're not generous, you're becoming that. Yeah. That's not just you like not doing what you're supposed to do. It's formative. Yeah. And um, if you complain and grumble, you start to become that complaint and that grumble in yeah. and of yourself. If you have, if you've ever noticed like you know, I heard somebody say that that when you when you look at really old people, they're almost never meh. Yeah. They're almost always just like the sweetest, most like yeah. precious thing. Or they're like the most angry, yeah. bitter, stubborn person. And that's because it's a lifetime of something. Yeah, you've had a lifetime of practice. And you're becoming something, right? Yeah. And so in our worship, and I don't just mean our Christian worship, in all of our life as worship, we become something. Yeah. And um, the, the purpose of the Christian life is to become like Christ mm-hmm. through attentiveness to him and worship of him and following his commands and being his disciples and living faithfully to him and submitting and surrendering to him. And the fact that we have access to that is, quite frankly, the unbelievable grace of God. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what we're going to do next is, you know, kind of having that question at least addressed. I'll never say that the question is answered because, <laughs> you know, it's, you can't really answer some of these questions, but it's addressed. And at least we might have like a little bit of a, an understanding of it. Um, we're going to go through Genesis 7 next episode, which is the flood story. Mm-hmm. And then after that, maybe we'll do Genesis 8 and 9 at one time, which is the end of the flood story. And then Genesis 10 is genealogy, so I don't know what we're going to do with that yet. <laughs> and then Genesis 11 is the Tower of Babel. And so the next month or so, we'll, we'll have some, some interesting stuff. If you have liked this podcast, I would like you to review it. Five stars, please. <laughs> you have to give it five stars. <laughs> you have to give it five stars. <laughs> and you should write a review, too. It, obviously, it helps the the algorithm and it helps people yeah. see this and... Um, and also, if you have any questions, you know, if you're hearing this and you're like, this is absolutely insane, this guy is a nut job, and you would like to have a conversation, then please email <laughs> us at uh, Jackie. No. <laughs> J-A-C-K-I-E at 514church.com, F-I-V-E-1-4 church.com. Uh, with any questions that you might have, really, For I mean, sure. I'm teasing about being combative, but any any questions that you have about the stuff that we talk about, I know it's a lot, and we we sort of try to guess people's questions and address them as we speak, but of course we don't know. That's true. It's so. way easier if we don't guess people's questions. If you've got questions about stuff you think we're going to cover, we'd love to know them. Yeah, and we're not, if you haven't noticed, we're not going particularly fast. So <laughs> You've got plenty of time to read ahead. <laughs> and so if you have if you have a really good question... We might do a whole episode just on that question. That's true. That's okay? true. Um, and so thank you guys for being here, Jackie. You got anything else before we go? That's all I've got. All right. Well, thank you guys for being with us, and we will see you next time on Story Single Spirit. Mm-hmm.